0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by that lovable rascal Jeremy Goldcorn. Think of how I'll describe you this week. Uh, that, how was, that was
1: quite mild. That was quite mild. Thank you. That, uh, that
0: you know. our streak is broken. Yeah,
1: it's a smoggy. It's really, the most r- disgusting day it's, it's been sweet. for a while, and
0: uh, yeah, we're losing our pull with with those those on high. I think so. That's really a pity, but... Um, I, I,
1: if you haven't listened to Seneca before, the last few months, every time we've recorded a podcast, it's been a gorgeous, gorgeous day. Yeah. Uh, like, like, but today is one of Beijing's worst. I think the
0: PM 2.5 is bumping up against 400.
2: Oh,
1: God.
0: Uh, but the good news today is that we have a visitor from uh, to old Choki from... from what used well, to be old Chokey. Right, from what used to be, the, the city that used to be like that. Uh, well, no, not actually, actually from no, there, that's but from true. Oxford. That's right. uh, we have with us today uh, Dr. Timothy Garton-Ash, uh, who is professor of history at Oxford College. Welcome to Seneca, Dr. Garton-Ash. Well, it's very nice to be here. We did indeed used to have smog
2: in the days of Charles Dickens. So yeah, you've was... transported me back to the Victorian age. <laughs> so there is still hope. Um, so
1: for people in a hundred years' time,
2: <laughs> but I have to say, for someone you know who hasn't been here for a year, it is you know rather living up or down to its reputation. I mean, it's something to behold. Right, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's impressive. Yeah.
0: Uh, we're we're going to uh, deviate a little bit from from the score, as it were, last time, um, and start off just by asking you what it is. Uh, you we, we were having coffee earlier uh, this afternoon. And Timothy, you, you told me that you were giving a talk on uh, on Wednesday at is it Tsinghua University or is it at Peking, uh, at, Beta. At, at Peking University? Um, great, and 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 the, the subject of it was fascinating. You were, you were talking about moving toward a more universal universalism. This is
2: my passion at the moment. I'm talking next week towards a more universal universalism, and basically. You know, we can talk between China and the West about politics, about nuclear weapons, about economics and so on, but we actually have to dig down and look at values and what we really think matters. And the trouble is that in a lot of these conversations, universalism or universal values are seen as a Western thing. And a lot of people from the United States and Europe think that way too. They think universal values are our Western Enlightenment values. And what I would think we need to do is to go dig deeper and have a look at what Chinese thinkers and Russian thinkers and Arab thinkers actually said. And it may turn out they were saying
0: some of the same things, just in different terms. And you're optimistic about that, though. You think that, that uh, I mean, is, is the enterprise ultimately to discover... Uh, that actually these non-western civilizations also developed uh, what are tantamount to enlightenment values
2: well i, I look it, it, take the golden rule of reciprocity do not do unto others as you would not have done unto you we find that in confucius we find it in uh, ancient jewish texts we find it in Christian texts. So sure, there's a very simple example. Look, I don't know what we will find when (laughs) we go looking. You know, I, I go looking, but I think it's definitely the way in which we should have the conversation rather than saying, here are monkeys, here are tigers, and all we have to do is to find coexistence between the monkeys and the tigers, and we call this the dialogue between civilizations, because actually intellectual history is not like that. Um, Someone wonderfully said cultural purity is an oxymoron. (laughs) It's a contradiction in terms of
1: all cultures
2: are mongrel. But
1: would you be prepared to accept a sort of a climb down from typical Western positions on some values that one thinks of as universal values? I mean, do you think that your search might lead you to a position where you think, well... um, The approach the Chinese government adopts towards uh, uh, values is that uh, individual values may sometimes be sacrificed for the greater good of the collective. So your individual rights as a farmer on this piece of land, well, Sodom, because the dam that we're going to build here is going to benefit the whole country. With that way of thinking, could you admit that way of thinking?
2: Well, let's have the conversation. I mean, by the way this is an idea that if memory serves came from a german philosopher called karl marx i mean it's not a it wasn't invented by the chinese government that idea of uh, of 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 collectivism and collective rights no let's have the conversation i mean i'm not going to compromise on what i believe are fundamental values not for a moment but let's at least Draw the map, draw the Venn diagram, and see where the circles
0: intersect and see where the real differences are. Absolutely laudable. And you've, I mean, Jeremy, it's not like. Uh just in the west uh, the 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 answer has always been to defer to the interests of the individual there's always been uh, in all discussions of, of ethics the sort of uh weighing the rights of the No absolute absolutely not answer. but
1: in China when people talk about the debate about universal values that's sort of the the locus of it often yeah. um, I so think so, so can I
2: just uh, jump in there because it, what, what is not the case is you know there's there's a sort of Cliché way of having the conversation, which used to happen with the Soviet Union, now happens with China. You say individual human rights, we say collective rights. You say political rights, we say social rights. You know, you have to get blonde. That's such a simplistic way of having the conversation. Um, I actually think that there's a great deal that you can find in. Um, I mean, take a thinker like Yan Fu, the translator of John Stuart Mill. He was consciously trying to blend. Chinese and Western traditions in
0: the way he thought about, you know, what would modernize China. Indeed, many of his intellectual successors were, were, were you know, trying to do essentially the same thing. I think that, that describes um, many of the dominant intellectuals from the 1860s through, through the, at least the 1920s. Uh, you know, one project that you're engaged on currently uh, strikes me as uh, a first run at this conversation toward more universal universalism uh, in in this debate, this free speech project that you're working on. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, because it seems like that's a very, very good starting point. And and, and this seems to be uh, the approach that you're taking toward this soliciting input from many, many, many different people about this idea of what ultimately should be uh, free speech. And where, where did this idea arise from? And, and uh, what's the state of the project currently? So... The starting point is
2: that we are all becoming neighbors, either physically or virtually. 300 languages are spoken in London. In New York, in Toronto, there are people from every country and culture in the world. And if we're not neighbors physically, we're neighbors virtually on the Internet. And we've never seen that before. We've never been in that position. And therefore, we have to talk about so to speak, the rules of the game. What are going to be the terms on which we have this conversation about everything else? So I set up an Oxford University website, which is freespeechdebate.com, which I hope people will visit. It's in 13 languages, which between them cover 80% of uh, fixed internet users, of course, Chinese, Russian, Hindi, Urdu, Arabic, and so on. And the question of the project is... What are the leg- legitimate limits to freedom of expression? So, for example, what about privacy, intrusions onto privacy? What about pornography? What about religion, which is a huge issue for much of the world, not so much for China? What about uh, national security? What about hate speech? Let's get people from everywhere using the amazing possibilities of the Internet to come and have that debate. And that's what happens on that site. And it's, it's incredibly interesting because, you see, you, you know the slogan of, of, of every newspaper. If it bleeds, it leads. Sure. Right. Therefore, the newspaper coverage, say about the Islamic world, is all about the conflicts. It's about Mohammed cartoons. It's about the hijab. If you have a conversation like this, you discover there are huge areas of agreement,
0: of overlap between people, and then there are these things on which we disagree. Are you finding that that um, in the course of this discussion involving all these speakers of different languages, you are converging towards some some points of agreement, or do you find that rather that that, that you're you're sort of uh, highlighting very very? stark and possibly unbridgeable differences in, in concepts so on be protected? So,
2: one thing I can tell you is that some
0: of the people most interested in this
2: project have been Chinese. Chinese readers, Chinese students. It's, it's interesting, that. Um, but it's not that they simply think, you know, free speech has never been say whatever you like, wherever you like, in any context. You know, true, untrue, whatever. So, there is quite a lot of Uh, convergence Um, for example there's a huge concern about privacy and the concern about privacy is as much about google and facebook as it is about what governments do right so that's an interesting example and particularly when governments and google and facebook get together then what's left of my privacy so that's a that's a good example of something that people everywhere are concerned about the other one on which I mean you know where well, interestingly china is an outlier doesn't really apply to china is religion i mean in a lot of the world people will come to blows because of a depiction of the prophet
0: muhammad or the depiction of a hindu god I'm thinking of um the i'm sorry what was the name of that that um filmmaker, uh, the Nestorian Christian filmmaker who made the uh, I'm sorry, what was the name of that? that the Muhammad YouTube, video. Yeah.
2: The, uh, Innocence uh, the Innocence of Muslims, Muslims video. So right. some some idiot in Southern California, exiled Coptic Christian post oh, Coptic, a, a terrible sorry. video called, I actually have. I'm writing a book on this, I have a whole chapter about this, called The Innocence of Muslims, which nobody takes any notice of for six months. Then it's taken up uh, by someone in Egypt, and within weeks, people are getting killed in Pakistan and Afghanistan because of a YouTube video posted in Southern California. I mean, that's the world we're in.
1: It is a crazy world. I, I think that's one of the reasons why Kaiser and I uh, have always felt quite at home in China, is <laughs> the <laughs> lack of <laughs> excitement about such, a, such things. Anyhow. Uh, so they excitement
2: I... about other things,
1: right? Uh, yeah. Other things, it's that thing. Things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. I don't know if you saw uh, Ian Johnson's piece today, where he he was critical of that Pew study that I had I had shared on. on
1: oh, about on his... how how atheists. Yeah, I just don't see eye to eye with Ian Johnson on that point. I have to say, uh, he's he's but pretty he much. Has, I mean, it's well researched, but I, I just think that depends. You know, you can look at it from both points of view. You can make a case that people are really interested in religion right now, but. Generally speaking, they're not. Right. <laughs> we, point we, mean, but hang we, on a we, second.
2: But in China, I'm, I'm told that there's a great revival of interest in religion. There is, but a time. lot of
1: it's like direct marketing. I mean, a lot of the Christian churches are basically social clubs. You know, you can interpret things in a variety of ways, but,
0: you know, perhaps I have my biases. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, here in China, anyway, the discipline of history. I want to move now into the, the substance of our conversation from, from uh, over the weekend at Capital M. Uh, the discipline of history has traditionally been tied and tied really quite intimately to the art and practice of statecraft. Right then, um, Timothy, you're somebody whose approach I think the the the, the old grand historians of China, Sima Qian and his ilk, would very much applaud. Uh, you describe yourself as an historian of the present. So, how does that vocation uh, relate to? more familiar things like journalism to journalists. I mean, journalists, they say, write the first draft of history, or to the, the uh, public intellectuals. What is this, this um, mongrel craft that you practice? So if you
2: stop to think about it, it's a pretty weird idea that someone who's sitting in an archive 30 years from now will be able to give a better account of our conversation in this studio in Beijing this evening than somebody who was actually here. So actually, for most of human history, the view was from Thucydides and Herodotus all the way through to the 18th century that history of the present was the best history because you'd been an eyewitness, you'd seen it yourself. It's only since the 19th century with the German... A school of professional history, that the idea has emerged that you have to wait thirty years till the archives are opened, you've seen all the documents, and then you understand better. The so, in be some good. sense, I'm returning to the great tradition of writing history of the present. Um, it differs from journalism. I'm, I'm proud also to practice journalism. It's a great craft, but it differs in this sense that I'm always trying to ask the historians' questions about cause and effect, looking critically at the sources about structure and process versus the role of the individual, asking those questions of very recent events. I would argue, for example, I chronicled the Velvet Revolutions of 1989. I would argue it's not just the first draft. That's actually too modest a statement because Mm. the eyewitness is a primary source Historians 100 years hence will go back and look at those accounts. What you don't know, what you don't know, and what the historian 50th hence does know, is the consequences, the long-term consequences. So to give you one example, if we'd been sitting in a studio in 1989 and you had said 25 years from now China will still be run quite effectively by a communist party but with a very large element of a capitalist or market economy, what's sometimes called Leninist capitalism, no one would have believed you. That was something nobody imagined in 1989. And I would argue that was a long-term consequence of the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, because as we know from the work of David Shambaugh and others, the Chinese Communist Party very consciously and intelligently and carefully learned the lessons from the collapse of communism in Europe.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You you have, as you've said, uh, you've been one of the the, uh, commentators at the forefront on the whole phenomenon of of, of late 20th and early 21st century uh, revolutions. And from your your latest book, uh, Facts Are Subversive, which is a a terrific volume I I recommend to absolutely anyone, Uh, it's fair to think, I think, to say that you've been kind of working toward uh a, a a new theory of revolution if you will that, that the suggestion that threads that book uh is that 1989 the velvet revolutions genus vr as you you, you term it uh represents a uh, a new template a new archetype for uh Revolution to replace the old one of 1789, which maybe described revolutions from, of course, you know, the the storming of the Bastille, uh, all the way through the Iranian Revolution of, 17, of, of, of 1978, 1979. Uh, what are the the features of, of genus VR? What are what are its 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 major points of taxonomy?
2: So I think this is one of the most interesting stories of our time. That you know, go back to any book written any time between, say, 1810 and 1980, and revolution was defined as something violent. Mm -hmm. It was defined by revolutionary violence by storming the Bastille or the Winter Palace, and what was characteristic for revolution was progressive radicalization. So it went from the moderates to the Girondins, to Mm -hmm. the Jacobins, uh, from the Mensheviks to the Bolsheviks in uh, 1917, China, 1979 in Iran, ending up with Khomeini. My argument is that since the Velvet Revolutions of 1989, which, by the way, had precursors. Pol- in Portugal, there was a revolution of the Carnations in 1974. Sure. You had Poland in 1881. You had the Philippines. We have a new Default model of revolution, which is mass mobilization, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, but non violent, and it ends in a negotiated transition. And you, there are whole, I can list you a whole series of revolutions, including the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, 000. which followed that pattern. Now, I insist, this is a, the default model. That's where you start. It may not be where you end up.
0: <laughs> well, we have not ended up um, in in negotiated settlement and in regime ch- uh, sort of gentle regime change in all cases. Um, I think that in many of the color revolutions that have, have, have happened since, um, I mean, everything everywhere from Kyrgyzstan to the Arab Spring. Yeah. By the uh, way, Kyrgyzstan doesn't count, doesn't and, and count.
2: Lebanon doesn't count. I mean, one unfortunate thing that happened is is that this authentic idea and phenomenon velvet revolution went into the realm of State Department branding. Oh. So that, for example, the Cedar Revolution, was in, the, the label was invented not by someone on the streets in Lebanon, but by, by a State Department official. And this is extremely superficial, you know.
0: What about Moldova? Does that count? Or?
2: Yeah, well, that's where do we draw the line? Right. I mean, look, I think the Arab Spring... What happened in Tunisia and what happened in Egypt definitely started as velvet revolution. There was a conscious, but nobody says that because you refrain from using violence, the
0: other side is going to. I see. Are you familiar with um, the, the Einstein Institution? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, how, how much of this really is attributable to? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the gentleman's name eludes me now. The guy who who wrote sort of uh, from. Dictatorship to Democracy, it's sort of a handbook for uh, velvet revolutionaries. Uh, Do do you think that that this guy has been given too much credit, has been given not enough credit? So I've actually
2: edited with a colleague called Adam Roberts a a study of civil resistance and power politics. We look at 18 examples of civil resistance all the way from Gandhi in India through the civil rights movement in the U.S., all the velvet revolutions to Ukraine in 2004. And there is a conscious learning process. There is a conscious learning process in there. Someone um, uh, was asked about in, in, in Georgia, which was in, in the Georgian revolution, um, how their revolution related to what happened in Serbia. And he said, look, ours was a copy of their revolution only louder. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a conscious learning process. uh, um, and, And if you go, as I have done, to these events, people will tell you that. But every single case is different. And what you have is a toolkit, but you have to use the tools in your own way, in your own circumstances.
0: No doubt a conscious learning process on the other side of the barricades as well. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely so, and the best example of that is Vladimir Putin's Russia, who were absolutely traumatized by the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, and they said, Okay, if you're gonna do Velvet Revolution, we're gonna do Velvet Counter Revolution and they have very, very skillfully developed a set of techniques uh, to counter Um, The man you're thinking of is Gene Sharp. Gene Gene Sharp Sharp with his list of things. They have their counter list of things. You know, you have NGOs, we make our own NGOs. Sometimes it's nicely called government organized non-governmental organization or gongos. You know, you use media, we use media and so on. So actually that, that that's right uh, authoritarians have learned too
1: how would you contrast the chinese response to the velvet revolutions and the jasmine revolutions uh, the arab spring or was uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the arab spring i'm sorry not the so with the, the russian
2: so here's the thing first of all Both of you are better qualified to answer that question than me because I know my limits. But
1: Uh, the comparison, I think you're better qualified than uh, us. You know, I don't think we know the Russian response as well as you do. So,
2: my sense of it is the following. First of all, that clearly, if you went back to May 1989, early June, Gorbachev coming to Beijing, there was a sense that all of the communist world was, you know, in the same story. Since summer 1989, it seems to me China and Europe have been on very different trajectories. And so it's very, it's, you know, there are always some common elements, but it's a rather different story. Second of all, there is a whole generation of Western journalists absolutely shaped by the experience of 1989 and so whenever anything happens almost anywhere they come in with a kind of meta-narrative at the ready so the Arab Spring is a classic example if you read the Western reporting of the Arab Spring it was going to be 1989 all over again what happened in Ukraine um, starting late last year and this year again it was to be told as kind of 1989 all over again. So I'm very wary of these meta narratives imposed from outside.
1: Speaking of meta narratives, I'd like to ask a question about um, sort of US support of color revolutions because one of the typical responses you see from people defending Russia, and I, I'm sympathetic to it, is that, you know, kind of how would you feel if you had a, a somewhat hostile country funding revolutions on your borders? So basically, if Russia was funding you know, uh, uh, popular movements in Canada and Mexico. How much is real of that in, say, the Ukraine? What is, you know, the NED? Uh, Is there... George Soros. George Soros, what's happening?
2: First of all, I would say go right ahead. Fund your revolution in Britain. Give it a whirl. And if if you are, you know, a well-functioning political system... You can spend as much money as you like. And by the way, the Soviet Communist Party did spend a great deal of money funding communist parties in Western Europe, and look where it got them. So that's that's part number one, that I think a, a system which has confidence in its own legitimacy is not going to worry about um, some money coming from party X or Y. Point number two, the money that went in is much less than most people think. So I actually, with a colleague, looked at the Orange Revolution. The largest estimates of Western funding, and this means George Soros, it means NGOs, it means governments, of Western funding is about $100 million. This is talking about 2004-05. as against about $300 million from Russia, right? So if we're talking about intervention, let's look at intervention from both sides. In the recent events in Ukraine, you know, Putin's advisor said the United States was giving 20 million dollars a week from the embassy and supplying weapons to the opposition. This is complete fantasy. Hmm. The level of support, of course there was support from NGOs, but it was not the decisive factor. The decisive factor was that so many Ukrainians were just fed up to the back teeth with an unbelievably corrupt kleptocracy, which was stealing from the state and from the people
0: on a heroic scale. Look, look, just, just how heroic. I remember uh, when we chatted last, you, you gave me a, a rather gobsmackingly huge number of... of, of tenders that had gone. Yeah,
2: yeah, let me tell you this, because it's truly fascinating. It's a figure from Forbes magazine Ukraine, which is in January this year, of the state tenders, the official state contracts. 50% went to the president's son, (laughs) who is a dentist, (laughs) largest dental extraction in history. Another 30% went to one oligarch, Rinat Akhmetov, who was a great supporter of the president. So just think of that for a moment. 80% 80% of state tenders in one month went to two people, both closely connected to the president. I mean, that is
0: kleptocracy on a heroic scale. Marvelous. Well, I mean, I think, we're, we're Jeremy, we're lucky to have uh, probably the, the, the foremost historian of the end of the Cold War here, present at a time where the end of the Cold War matters an awful lot in our understanding of what's happening right now in Ukraine and, uh, and, of course, the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, the violent turn that, that things took it in Euromaidan and and, and everything else. Um, last a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was. Now the, the former ambassador, uh, the U, former U.S. ambassador to the USSR, um, Jack Matlock Jr., uh, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but his suggestion was that the U.S. was in some sense culpable for the turn of events in Ukraine. I mean, it was really kind of self-flagellating. And um, I, 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 I wonder what you thought of that, uh, this idea that NATO violated, I think he called it an understanding uh, that we had to not take advantage of the Soviet retreat, uh, and that by rolling all the way up onto, as Jeremy suggested, onto to, to Russia's front porch, um, that we were, in some sense, responsible for, for you know, we poked the bear, as it were. Um, how do you see things... Do you, do you think there's anything to that? Or? I
2: think there's very little to that um, okay. because uh, the only people we took into NATO from the former Soviet Union are the Baltic states, who are a special case. We didn't take Ukraine into NATO. We didn't take Moldova into NATO. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, that's been like that for years. Now, I don't think that is right at all. But of the Warsaw Pact countries. I, we yeah, I, mean, I mean, first of all, you've got to understand this, what happens in Ukraine, started in Ukraine. It didn't start in Moscow. It didn't start in Washington. It didn't start in Brussels. And it was what I've described. that people just got fed up to the back teeth with this lousy regime. Mm-hmm. That, that's point number one. Point number two, um, the bear sure as hell got angry. And you can understand this, but in a different historical perspective. Um, most... Imperial powers don't like giving up their empires (laughs) without a struggle. I'm I'm British, you're American, you may recall we had a little passage a a little time ago about that. Tea tea parties (laughs) and things, okay? Uh, In 1989 to 1991, a nuclear-armed superpower, the Soviet Union, gave up the last great European empire, a vast continental empire, without a shot fired in anger. That's an amazing fact. So the amazing thing is not what Putin has done in Georgia or Crimea. The amazing thing is what Gorbachev didn't do in 1989 to 1991. So I think whatever the West had done, if we'd been pure sweetness and light, if we'd behaved like the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think there would still have been a reaction in Russia to that absolutely
0: dramatic loss of, of empire and prestige. Do you don't think we possibly exacerbated it and and maybe um, are stirring up the kind of reactive nationalism which uh, we saw take very ugly shape in the Germany of the 1920s and 30s uh, during the...
2: No, I really don't think, I really do not think that this was the 1920s all over again, that it was Versailles. We didn't impose a Versailles on Russia. Actually, there was considerable effort, you know, there was actually considerable effort particularly to help... uh, Russia under Boris Yeltsin, and remember, you know, okay, Russia's now been kicked out of the G8, but, but Russia was taken into the G8, into the WTO, into other organizations, international organizations. So I, I don't think that's the key to it. I'm not saying we, we did nothing wrong, because of course we, Western policy made mistakes, but I don't think it's right to regard it as the main cause of what happened.
0: Um, so, in your chapter about uh, Transnistria in in Facts Are Subversive, um, you suggest that the real fact is that we're now dealing not with the decline and fall of the Soviet Empire, but actually of the Russian Empire. Mm. Uh, and you write that that uh, you know w- w- these states have been left in kind of a limbo or a vacuum state. I mean, Transnistria is the best example of it. Virtually lawless entity, uh, you know, a part of Moldova. Are, are
2: we assuming our listeners know where Transnistria is? I, I think oh.
1: that would be very good because Transnistria <laughs> sounds like a completely made up place.
2: Um, for readers of Tintin, it might sound uh, <laughs> familiar. That's right, Soldavia. So, so uh, Moldova is Strattles now in. an independent country, and on its eastern king, side, there is a, a sliver of territory which was occupied by the 14th. Soviet Red Army, which declared its own autonomy, and so it's a breakaway para-state. In some sense, it's comparable to, you know, Crimea or something. And and this is what I write about. And the interesting point is, this is territory that was became part of the Russian Empire at the end of the eighteenth century. So this is decolonization, you know, on a historic
0: scale. Right. But do we live with black holes like this? This is the question that you raise. I mean, do we or do we assume the burdens of empire ourselves, uh, we the West? Well, I mean, the European
2: Union is the most reluctant empire in the history of humankind. (laughs) Um, It's a very, very weird entity because at every stage since the 1960s, The last thing the European Union has wanted to do, or then European community, is to get any bigger. And it has people constantly knocking on the door. You know, now it's Turkey knocking on the door, and Ukraine and Moldova saying, please, please let us in. And the French and the German and the Belgians, Italians, find all the possible ways they can of saying no. And finally, they run out of ways of saying no, so they let them in. So it's it's a kind of (laughs) weird, weird creature.
0: Um, I want to transition now, and maybe for the rest of the time that we have, back to China. Um, perhaps um, by way of segue, first we can we can talk about you, you frame the issue of of Ukraine as one of of sovereignty versus you know, national self determination or of self determination. Um, can you can you explain what you mean by that, and 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 maybe draw an analogy to what it might mean? Uh, for China as it watches these things unfold. So it is something
2: quite extraordinary and very worrying in the history of international relations when a country simply walks into a neighboring country and takes a bit of its territory and a- annexes it. This is something that happened for most of human history, but since the late 20th century it hasn't happened uh, often and that's what's happened with Crimea. Now, by the way, can I just say we, Britain and America, set a pretty bad example by marching in marching into Iraq, but we didn't end up annexing a bit of Iraq. But that wasn't a great example. You just
1: killed hundreds of thousands of people. uh, Yeah, yeah, and 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 and, take it and and, and,
2: and Jeremy and and by the way, this was I mean I I I think I shouldn't say you a a massive a massive historical mistake with terrible consequences that will be with us for years to come. Let me be absolutely clear about that. Well, Iran's happy about it. E- right. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the Iraq war's over, Iran won. That's exactly. the line on this. But, but we didn't go that extra step. Now, China. Uh, um, the, y- y- you can like the Chinese position over the last 25 years, or you can dislike it, but it was a consistent defense of the sovereignty of existing states in their existing frontiers however Exceeds those frontiers came power. about okay and 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 you know say what you like about that it's a consistent position if you were to maintain that consistent position then you should condemn the annexation of Crimea yeah
0: i should hate putin for his revanchism right
2: yeah absolutely and 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 look there is a so called English school of studying international relations, which places great emphasis on international order and sovereignty. Since the seventeenth century, since the Peace of Westphalia, has been the crucial building block of international order. So there's a lot to be said for it. But if 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 that's what you think, then you've got to be consistent about it.
0: So the, the self-determination part on that, I mean, because that's something that this is this is the reason why China is so flummoxed by this situation is that it also sees, uh, you know, it understands, you know, while while I'm I'm sure uh, it it doesn't see the situation like the Sudetenland, uh, it it sees some logic to a Russian-speaking majority in the Crimea wanting to rejoin its mother country. Okay,
2: So, so, so first of all, liberals, with a small l, are very good on individuals... We, we the sovereignty and self determination of individuals. We're good at that. We work that out. Okay, mm-hmm. liberals are hopeless on collectivities. Working out why one group of people, why Kosovo but not Catalonia? If Catalonia, why not Ruthenia? You know, why we, we're very bad at all of that. We haven't really worked it out. But there are two S- reasonable S- conditions. S- okay, one is uh, you don't send in the tanks. You do it peacefully by negotiation. Secondly, there's a constitutional process which has consent within the existing state. So as we speak, a part of my own country, Britain, Scotland, is preparing to vote in a referendum on independence. That's right. And that's fine because it's entirely peaceful, it's entirely democratic, and it's with the consent of the whole country. So if, that, if, if that's what was happening in Crimea, that's fine
0: very good um uh, it struck me as you we were talking about uh the, the, how twenty five years ago europe uh, eastern europe the former soviet union and 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 the Eastern Bloc parted ways with the other great communist party state, which is of course China, and how they 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 set off on very different paths and um looking back now uh what, what were the roots of, of that I mean you know there are some people who would s- simply say well this these were uh, imposed. I mean, uh, in in Eastern Europe, these were regimes that were imposed in 1945 by the advancing Red Army. Whereas the Chinese Revolution was indigenous, and that's the difference. I would um, I, I look at uh, other other things, like for example, uh, in Genus VR that you you, t- you talk about. One of the, uh, the the salient characteristics of it is that it's not class based. It, mm. it instead mm. seeks to mobilize uh the broadest possible swath of, of of the population, you know, against the, the, the a regime it, it it sees to be legitimate. In eighty nine eighty nine in China, uh that wasn't the case. I think you what you had was a very self-consciously uh student intellectual uh uprising if you will to use that with the, some the, workers involvement too only yes. later though i mean and and mm. it wasn't really until uh well after the declaration of martial law that that you started to see that you mm. started at, at the beginning for the first i was i was here the whole time the first month the first three weeks at least uh and the march routes themselves were even lined uh, they, they would hold pink twine of the sort you used to get in state-run stores to wrap your parcel uh, around the periphery of their, of their march group, and, and deliberately exclude anybody who wasn't a student or wasn't, oh. you know, somebody of, of, of the elite. It was a very self-consciously elitist movement. I thought that might have also been one of, 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 of the big differences. Uh, just, just, just a supposition. I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Uh,
2: so, I mean, I, I, I think. In an interesting way, the world turned on the 4th of June, 1989. I was in Poland at the first semi-free election in the Soviet bloc, which was actually the beginning of the end of communism in Poland. What a strange coincidence
0: of dates. It was a
2: most amazing thing. And and but but I mean I'm I'm sure you're right that because of course before China there was communism in Russia and so the Russian attitude to communism as visible in Vladimir Putin, is a very different one, but I think that, as I said earlier, Deng Xiaoping, who is this absolutely extraordinary figure in the history of the 20th century learned very consciously the lessons of what had gone wrong elsewhere, produced this thing which in sort of absolutely crude shorthand, with apologies to all the China experts listening, you might call Leninist capitalism. And it is the most interesting political experiment of our time.
0: I mean, it, 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 for me, it's utterly, utterly fascinating. And uh, what's happened now is Xi Jinping really sort of a uh, i've described it on this show as a doubling down on dungism on that very precise formula it's more leninist more concentration of, of power in the party's hands and more capitalist uh. spot on spot on exactly
2: and and that is now and that's and that's exactly the question so you have the leading role of the party being reasserted but you're also encouraging more capitalism around the edges my view is that this is you know it, it, poor old Francis Fukuyama, my friend Frank Fukuyama, who by every, the way, every bar philosopher um, slags off saying, Oh, no, oh yeah, the end of history, la oh, ho, 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 the end of history. He was saying something completely different, which is that there isn't a big ideological transcultural competitor there to wasn't. liberal democracy in the way that communism and fascism were in the 20th century. He was right. And Islamism was not such a competitor, but variants of authoritarian capitalism, and particularly Chinese Leninist capitalism, is that competitor. If you're looking at it from Africa, in the year twenty fourteen, seeing what's happened to the West since two thousand and eight, it looks like a serious competitor.
0: So that is a really exciting story of our time. We talk a lot about contested modernity, about uh, people looking for modernization without westernization. Uh, is this a, a viable model? I mean, is this I mean, Jeremy? You know, you're African, right? Uh, <laughs> do do people really look at you know? Is there a a Beijing consensus? Is is that something? Is that Uh, a thing?
1: (laughs) In Africa, this is a real question. Do you follow a China model? And, I mean, the Chinese government generally, their response is, well, we don't really know what that is, and you've got to go your own road. They don't— I
0: think China thinks that it's sui generis, that it's just— Well, I mean, in
1: this sense, it does. I mean, very—the government has made several statements that are very clear that they— uh, things that have been repeated in uh, meetings that are reported on Xinhua with African countries that China says every country must decide you know its own way but th- uh, of course there are things that they like uh, about the Chinese system and that they do um
0: is there any authoritarian uh, ruling party let, would let <laughs> uh,
1: african leaders you know uh, politicians come to china and, and study from it so and it is a subject of a lot of debate in the african media and african social media you
2: see mm-hmm. i think that's so interesting because the difference is this Um, that that the United States in particular says the American model is a model for the whole of humankind. That's American universalism. As I understand it until now, the China model has been understood essentially as a model for China, right? That's right. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. It hasn't been for export in the ideological sense in which Wilsonian universalism would say you'd all be better off if you did it our way but that doesn't stop other people looking at you and saying hey that looks quite attractive uh, a model of development with a strong role for the state and so on and so forth so that almost willy-nilly whatever the Chinese leadership wants to say um, other people create an idea of a China model now if you ask me what I think, I am in the long term profoundly skeptical about its prospects. Mm-hmm. I think that in the end, as Churchill famously said, liberal democracy will prove to be the worst possible system, apart from all the other systems that have been tried from time to time. But oh,
0: but there's certainly a competition, and that's good for us. I, I think that it is important to emphasize, though. I think as as, as Jeremy said, and, and Timothy, you agree, it, it, it's not as though... Uh, Beijing is dispatching teams of economists from Tsinghua University to client states in sub-Saharan Africa the way that uh, the United States did from, you know, the University of Chicago into Pinochet's Chile. No,
1: they dispatch surveyors who go and see if there's oil or, (laughs) like, farmland. That's what they dispatch. There there is not an ideological component currently to the Chinese government's outward push.
2: I mean, in one respect, uh, I think it's almost a pity but because... China is such an important player in world politics that it has to have some views on how the world should be organized, on international order. And just saying, you know, all we're about is our own national development and that's all that we're interested in the resources wherever they are, you know, that's not so great for the world.
0: And that, that is a
1: big challenge for China that I don't think anybody has in the government has really figured
0: out I, I for my part I'm I'm grateful not to have China attempting to export any kind of ideology at present but uh
2: yeah but no but
0: but if China you
2: know if you look at I mean just you know in Syria we haven't talked about Syria this absolute horror is unfolding you know 300 people dying every day Nine million people, one-third of the population of Syria are homeless. Displaced. I mean, it's massive. It's far bigger than Bosnia. And, and this is beyond geopolitics or alliances. This is a massive humanitarian disaster. And actually, you need people to get engaged and to try to find a solution there.
1: May I uh, change the subject somewhat and ask a question? Um, a lot of foreigners who live in Beijing especially and other parts of China for a long time uh, like to think of themselves as having a secret police file because they like to think of themselves as being somewhat dodgy and you know most of the people who think that i i think that you know why would the chinese secret police keep a file on you you're a fucking nonetheless um you have written but uh, uh, you've also talked about you know uh, historians in the past uh, in the last 100-some years have said, well, in 30 years' time, we'll open the archives and then read the history. You wrote a book where you got the chance to open your own archive. The File. uh, The File. Um, Can you just uh, explain how that book came about and um, what it felt like to read the East German Stasi secret police file on yourself? This was... An absolutely extraordinary experience. So what happened was that I lived
2: in East Germany behind the Berlin Wall. And the Stasi were trying to work out what I was up to, so they compiled a, a bigish file on me. And as you know, after the wall came down and Germany was reunited, they opened the Stasi files, uh, 160 kilometers of files, and there I found my file, codename Romeo. <laughs> and
1: <laughs> I, I There's would take te- that, that, that was a compliment, right? <laughs> oh, take it how you will. I,
2: I think it was because I, think it was I had an Romeo, but anyway, let's leaving that aside. And what you find is days of your life reconstructed minute by minute in extraordinary detail, so that the Stasi was my Proust, the Stasi was my Madeleine, you're confronted with. This intimate detail of your own life. And then what I did was to go out and I compared it with my own diary from that time. I tracked down the people who'd informed on me, the Stasi officers who'd been on my own case, and I investigated the secret police's investigation of me. And then the result is this book called The File, A Personal History, which is this journey of discovery, Um, uh, you know, including some of the people who informed on me were people who'd I'd counted as friends, so it was quite traumatic. But what I tried to do was not to denounce these people, but to understand why they had done it. And what you discover is that these were not quote unquote evil people. They were not people who were just naturally bad. They were just human all too human and that a very bad, a very nasty police state is built on human weakness, on ordinary people like you and me. So the lesson from that is it could happen anywhere.
0: Fascinating. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, we can move very quickly to, to a couple of recommendations. Um, Jeremy, do you have something that you'd like? Yeah,
1: to I have two kind of oddball things. The one is, you know, since we're speaking about secret police and... um. Uh, you know a day, you know a, a minute by minute breakdown of people's days is this new product called Narrative Clip which you can buy it's a little camera that you uh, you know size of a little button basically you clip it onto your clothing and it takes a photograph every 30 seconds and then can upload it to the cloud so you can basically have a photographic memory of your day and I haven't got one yet, but I want to because I just think this is a fascinating experiment in the melding of the machine with the brain. I mean, this is you. You, you, do you really want?
2: Do you really want the world to know what you're doing? Every I week? want
1: to do it for a week. I want to do it for a week and feel well, feel
2: what's like. When you order
0: and get me one too, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it too. All All right. Right. Okay. Um, do
2: you know the Norwegian book called My Struggle? There's a Norwegian bestseller of someone who, in six volumes, has chronicled every moment of his life. Was it another it book called that, My Struggle. Yeah, no. yeah, there was an illusion there.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'd just quickly like to recommend is at XH News Twitter feed, Xinhua News Twitter feed. If you're interested in China, you know, I'm not sure who's running it, but it's just, worth following if you like twitter because they post it, yeah. interesting things they post weird things they post serious things and it's just a great piece
0: of oddball chinese oddballness <laughs> okay wonderful timmy do you have anything that you want to just uh, recommend to our listeners off the top of your head it two doesn't things. have to be china related anything you want. two things two. first of all what do they
2: know of china who only china know J.M. Roberts' History of the World is a Mm. fantastic book. And if one's looking at China in the long term. And secondly, just a great uh, um, curated site called thebrowser.com. I don't know if you know it. The browser. A guy called Robert Cottrell, um, who sits for 27 hours each day reading uh, essays on the internet. And is just a brilliant choice of the most interesting essays online. So it's audio. It's entirely uh, no, no. The, 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 it's text. It's oh, text. Okay. The okay. browser. dot com, well, yeah, and he simply selects he selects, he selects long long pieces from the
0: weirdest spaces. But it's a it's, oh, a, it's a great site. Well, yeah, wow. I, I'm I'm delighted to hear about it. Um, um, the recommendation I'm going to make is a, a little bit maybe you know nepotistic here in this context. Uh, uh, one Alec Ash. Uh, <laughs> no no uh, relation implied here. Uh, runs, it curates a, a, ter- a terrific site called theanthill.org. Uh, it's it's a, a group blog of, of very, very, very well-written, uh, long-form, often uh, narrative nonfiction. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it. There's some terrific writers on it, uh, including Alec himself. Uh, please give it a read. Uh, I hope one day to contribute something to it myself. I think it's a form that I, I very much enjoy reading. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for taking the time during uh, your short trip here to Beijing to come in, I mean, to, to talk to me not once, but twice. And uh, we uh, look forward to having you again. On, I, I assume that having spent as much time as you have of late in China, you've got something China-related percolating that you want? You bet. I will be back. Oh, good, good, good. good. Okay. And you'll be welcome here in, in at the Pop-Up Chinese studio. Jeremy, uh, I'm off again. Um, You're off again. But but you know, but on on Friday evening at the AAS conference, I'm going to be recording uh, with Pankaj Mishra, and uh, we will put up that when, when talking about his new book, A Great Clamor, about Indian perspectives on China, Chinese perspectives on India, and all matter, matters intellectual history. I'm
1: looking forward to that. I regret I won't be around with you. But...
0: Well, we'll see you soon enough. Anyway, thanks, folks, and we'll see you next week here on the Seneca podcast. Take care.